Well, when we consider persecution, certainly it really primarily focuses in on a uh, men hurting other men, people hurting other people. And most of the time when we think of persecution, it really centers around the idea of beatings, torture, uh, incarceration. And while all those things are devastating and awful and terrible, and many of our brethren around the world are dealing with that very thing, I surmise for most of us in the West, what we're perhaps going to deal with more so is public shaming, false accusations, smear campaigns against the people of God. Now that happens in other parts of the world as well. Uh, not, I wouldn't put it past tyrants in this part of the world to engage in other sort of physical persecution, but I surmise most of it uh, will stem from that sort of uh, uh, mental sort of persecution. And certainly social media is not a good platform for this. Certainly social media will only uh, exacerbate that problem. But you see it's issues like this in places like China. People have billboards or on billboards, people are shamed. Billboards, people are, are, are publicly called out for going against the regime. I surmise that would be perhaps more of what we could face in this part of the world. And it is something that David is dealing with here in Psalm 7. He's dealing with a false accusation. He's dealing with a public smear campaign against the king of Israel. And so Psalm 7 is an individual lament of David. It does turn to praise. Most laments turn to praise. Uh, but it really is in that book, one of the Psalter, that focuses on the struggles of faith, but also where one can find their confidence. And so if we are falsely accused, if someone bears false witness against us, there is a God we can call upon, namely the God of justice. And so the problem is very clear. The problem of smear campaigns and false accusations, the reality is people will lie. People will do uh, wicked things in order to destroy other people they do not like. It was a problem for David. It probably will be a problem for us. But there is a just God who is our Lord that we can call upon each and every day. And this is what David does here in Psalm 7. David prays for vindication in his just God. And we'll focus on this prayer of vindication under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a prayer of vindication, verses 1 through 10. Then secondly, we'll see a prayer of judgment, verses 11 through 17. So a prayer of vindication, verses 1 through 10. And secondly, a prayer of judgment, verses 11 through 17. So let's first look at a prayer for vindication, verses 1 to 10. And when I say vindication, I mean the idea of being cleared of suspicion, having th proven to be right, making things right when there is a wrong. And so David, the first place he goes is he goes to his God. Notice in verse 1, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me. Now we do have a, um, a superscript here for us that describes the, the reason for why David is singing this song. And we see, actually, it's verse 1 in the Hebrew. There's 18 verses in the Hebrew, but your superscript in the English, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, we don't really know much about this guy named Cush. But we know a lot about some Benjamites who did not like David very much. Certainly, King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't like David so much. And there were other, perhaps, descendants of David, ones who were from Benjamin, that held a grudge against him after Saul had died. You see this in 2 Samuel 16, Mephibosheth and Shammai. 
They bring accusations against David. So perhaps it's in the Cush could be in and around 2 Samuel 16. Uh, Certainly follows with what we've seen already in the Psalms that after David had to flee from Absalom, after David did that wicked thing with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he flees from that, he has to deal with the downfall of that. And so it is perhaps after that period as well. Again, we don't know much, but we know that there are Benjamites who do not like David. And they want to take him down. They want to remove him. They can't stand him uh, because he took the throne uh, in their eyes from Saul. And so David sings this song. Sometimes we need to sing a song about God's judgment. Sometimes we need to sing a song about God's justice. That's why I like the Psalms. That's why I like singing them. A lot of the hymns are great, but a lot of them don't have songs about judgment. I know sometimes I pick bad tunes for certain songs. I remember one time, my dear wife pointed this out to me, and it was a silly, silly thing that I thought of. But on Father's Day, it just happened to line up with what we were talking about that day. And we sang a psalm about how God's going to make people fatherless and how he's going to dash the little one to pieces. And we did it to a happy tune. That probably wasn't the great idea to do that very thing. But sometimes we need to sing a dirge. Sometimes we need to sing a psalm of justice to be reminded that God is the God of justice for the oppressed for those who are falsely accused. And so this was a boon to David's soul in the time of his uh, plight, in the situation where there was a false accusation against him. And so he trusts in the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. It start, He starts the psalm with a reminder of where his refuge is and where he can bring his problems. Whatever plight, whatever problem we have in this world, we have a God who can handle that very thing. And so when someone is bringing false accusations, we can come before our God and seek his face. And notice he says, the Lord, my God, the covenant name for Israel, the God overall, but without, you know, uh, getting all evangelical, we do see the personal nature of this relationship. The Lord, my God, you are the covenant Lord. You are the God overall, but you are my God. And you are the God that I can call upon in my trial. I find my refuge in you. I find my strength in you. And you're the God who saves. So he goes on to say uh, in verses 1 and 2, save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. There are persecutors. There are perpetrators. There are men who are trying to take out David, men who want to do terrible things to David. And uh, and we don't know the reason why just yet. We'll get to that in verse 4. But the point is, there are these men who try to take David out. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, O Lord, the God of my refuge. And then he gives an image of what these men are like. Verse 2, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me or dragging me away in pieces while there is none to deliver. These men are like a bloodthirsty lion. These men are, are cruel. These men want to do terrible things towards me. We see the bloodthirstiness of men and the intense cruelty, uh, the depravity of man on display. Man is desperately wicked. Don McClure, who shot a crocodile every day in Africa, said the most dangerous animal is man. Not crocodiles, not lions, not tigers, not bears, but man. And certainly David likens this cruel Cush the Benjamite to a lion who's going to rend him in peace, who's going to tear him limb from limb unless God delivers him. God, deliver me. God, save me. Deliver me lest I be torn in 
pieces. So he puts his trust in God, save me and deliver me. Then he lays out his case before God in verses three through five. And verses three through five is what's called an oath of innocence, or it can also be an oath of judgment. That is God, if I did this very thing, if I did the thing that is being brought against the accusation against me, let it be so. Let me receive the, the verdict for what I have done. But it's really an oath of innocence. I have not done this. I'm swearing this oath and saying, if I have done it, Lord, do what is needed. But he's trying to say, I have not done this very thing by this oath of innocence. And so he says, oh, Lord, my God, verse three, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, and then verse four, we see perhaps the reason why Cush isn't so happy. If I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, if I've done this terrible thing against a friend or if I've done a terrible thing against an enemy without cause, let it be so. Let judgment be rendered upon me. Let judgment come upon me. Now, there are many images in this psalm, but the overarching one is God as the just judge. This is David in the courtroom. Perhaps Cush is on the other side as the plaintiff. David is the defendant. God is the judge. He's laying his case before God as the defendant. Lord, I've not done this thing that this Cush guy is saying I've done. I've not done this thing that he's bringing against me. Lord, here is my situation. Here is my plight. If I have done it, let it be so according to your proper verdict. And so the overarching uh, image here is this one of the judgment seat. And so the main charge is he's repaid evil to him who was a friend, and he's plundered an enemy without cause. Then he says, if there was all this, let these things happen to me. Let the enemy pursue me, verse 5, and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth, lay and lay my honor in the dust. Let me be no more. Let me be killed. Let me be put to shame. Let my name be trampled to dust. Let my good name be brought low. Let me be but nothing if I have done this very thing. So it's a hypothetical case and a hypothetical verdict, but it is an oath of innocence before the just judge of the world. Selah. Can you imagine seeing that, seeing that in the in the temple? Selah. Selah perhaps was a, uh, it was a musical, perhaps pause. We don't really know what it means, but there's one Selah in this psalm, and it goes right there after he lays his case out, Selah. And then we see in verses 6 through 10, the just God, the justice of God who examines the upright. And notice, we see God is the judge over the whole world. Here's my case. You're the God overall. Now enter into that judgment seat. He says in verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Notice what specifically gives him refuge in this time. It is the justice and righteous indignation of God. As we've seen in some of these psalms already, these psalms are tough for our modern Delicate little minds sometimes, aren't they? Look what he says again. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. And as we're going to see, it's not a vindictive anger, but it is a righteous anger. It is righteous justice towards those who've wronged God most high. And David is finding refuge in this very thing. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. 
lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. These enemies are not some innocent little people just living their life. These enemies are trying to take out the anointed one. In a lot of ways, he's also clinging to God's promise to that Davidic line, to that Davidic covenant, to that Davidic promise. Lift yourself up against these ones who rage against me. Rise up for me, verse 6, to the judgment that you have commanded. He's finding hope in the justice of God, but he's also going to find hope in judgment day. Judgment day is something that is going to be a great day of rejoicing for God's people, not just because of heavenly bliss, although that's something we greatly long for, but also because of righteous vindication against the enemies of God. And brethren, the enemies of God are people. I know there's Ephesians where it says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but how does that manifest, dear brethren, in people? Jesus says in John 8, you are, to the, speaking to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. This goes way back to creation. And when we see that curse pronounced upon the serpent, it's actually the place of the first gospel proclamation, uh, but it is actually declared in a curse. In fact, Dale Ralph Davis, when he has a sermon on John, uh, Genesis 3.15, he says, joy to the world, the curse is declared. What does it say there? It says, The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, but he shall bruise your heel. Talks about different seeds, seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. And I think we see this line play out through the rest of Genesis, don't we? Cain and Abel. We have Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, so on and so forth. We see that line, seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. And when we get to the Pharisees in John 8, where Jesus, Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil. There are enemies in this world, whether we like it or not. Now, we're not called up to take up arms and to go, you know, engage in our enemies that way, but to give up and and trust in the judge of all the earth. That's what David is doing here. David is saying, God, you are the just judge of vengeance is yours, Lord. Now avenge your servant. Avenge your anointed one. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. And also in verse 7, God is over all. So the congregation of the people shall, shall surround you. God is the judge over all, not just Israel, but over the whole world. And he says, for their sakes, therefore return on high. God isn't just the God over Israel, but God is the judge over all. God is the God who sees all. It's not just for my sake, but for the sake of others as well, which uh, we will see in verse 10. But we see here that God is going to judge everyone. In fact, this comes up later on in Acts 17, as Paul is speaking at Athens. He's speaking at the Areopagus, and he says, in verse 3, drives to the point. He talks about how God has general revelation in the world and it leaves man without excuse and he drives home the point that there is one who has been given by special revelation namely the lord jesus christ god is the one uh, verse 30 truly these times of ignorance god overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to uh, repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained Christ is going to judge this world as the righteous 
king, as the righteous one over all, the greater David will be the judge over all things. So God is the judge of this world, and he will judge all on that final day. None can escape his gaze. The congregations of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Verse 8. And then notice what David says. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Prove me to be right in this situation according to my righteousness. Not that he was always righteous. Yes, he is righteous spiritually in Christ to come. What he's saying is here is I am righteous in this specific situation. I did not do anything wrong. I did not do what Cush is saying that I did. He's putting his trust in God. Lord, I have not done this very thing that has been brought against me. Judge me, O Lord, accordingly so. And according to my integrity within me. Prove me to be right in this specific situation. I have not done this thing that has been brought against me. I surmise that is a cry for many Christians around the world. I think there are many Christians around the world thrown in prison unjustly. Many Christians persecuted unjustly. And this is a prayer that they can pray. This is a prayer that we can pray for them. This is a prayer that we can pray uh, for ourselves, should we be in a situation like this. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. The judge overall, hear my cry, hear my plight. What's so interesting, brethren? If it is the situation with Mephibosheth, uh, whatever, Mephibosheth and, uh, and Shammai, that's after, again, David and Bathsheba. That's after that situation where God said to him, I will, you know, yes, the line shall continue, but I'm going to have someone from within uh, make the rest of your days a real tough time. Doesn't he say that? That's after this. That's after David did that terrible thing. That's after David did adultery and after David murdered. But this situation, O oh Lord, according to my righteousness, you are a just judge. You are a just Lord. Thank you for forgiveness in Christ to come, but help me in this very situation. And he says in verses 9 and 10, this is an imprecation. I'll talk more about imprecation when we get to verses 11 through 17. I've talked about them in the past. It's calling upon judgment. Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end and establish the just. What's the hope of the child in Isaiah 9? That he would establish justice forever. That he'd be the one who establishes righteousness forever. And so as he does that, wickedness must be no more. Wickedness must be taken out of the picture. Wickedness must be removed. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked, may that come to an end and establish the just. And he goes on to give the reasons for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. God tests and knows all. The judge of the earth knows all. And if he delays in his judgment, that is his prerogative. And it may be that he delays in his judgment. As we saw in Ecclesiastes 4, there's oppression. There isn't righteousness at the judgment seats in cities. Where is hope? There's a judgment day that is coming. 
That is a hope for the oppressed in Ecclesiastes 4. That is a hope for David here as he is oppressed with false accusation. I know oppressed these days is a loaded word. We believe in oppression. We believe it's wrong. We believe it's terrible. And we see David here is oppressed. And there is hope for that. When there are these show courts and people are thrown in prison, there is hope that a just judgment day shall come. God tests. God knows and notice. He is our defense. Same word that is used for shield uh, in chapter uh, in Psalm 3. It's the same God who protects us, but also the same God who defends us. We have our Christ who stood in our stead. And because of that, because of what he has done, we have our God who is on our side. And in fact, I think this is the image in Acts 7 when Stephen is stoned. I see Stephen is on trial in Acts 7. That's where he gives his defense and gives his answer uh, that he's been asked to give. A uh, little connection with what we saw this morning. He gives that answer. He's standing before the trial and he gives his answer to what is going on here. And he, he drives to the point where he says to the Jews, you're stiff-necked people. They don't like that. And so they, you know, try and stone him. You know what's happening when he's being stoned? He looks up and he sees Jesus standing there. I think I've tried to highlight this. A lot of people like to say it's Jesus ready to receive him. What I think it is, is Jesus standing as a witness. Jesus is standing as his heavenly witness and as his defense. He is vindicating Stephen as Stephen is being killed. As Stephen is dying on his behalf, as Stephen is that first martyr, Christ is our defense. God is our defense who saves the upright in heart. And I think we do see that with Stephen. He is our shield. He is our defender. And this is the concern that David has. And notice too, who saves the upright in heart. It's not just for David, but it's for others as well. Others who might face similar situations, not just for me, my defense, who saves all the upright in heart. What the concern of David is also for the benefit of others who are unjustly persecuted. My defense is of God. This is his prayer of vindication. Now, brethren, we can pray prayers of vindication. Our standing before God is because of Christ and his imputed righteousness. And when we go through situations perhaps like this, who, are we, who and what are we appealing to? God's character. God, this is who you are. This is what you've said we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You said you're the just judge. We believe that God is love. Yes, we do. We also believe God is a simple God. That means his attributes don't add up to be God, but he is a perfect being. And we can't uh, ignore all the attributes revealed for us in scripture. And so he is perfect love, but he is also perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And he must punish the wicked. He must do that very thing because of who he is. But thankfully, he punishes Christ in the stead of his people. Thankfully, Christ is the one who stands in our stead. Thankfully, Christ, because of him, we are righteous before him. And so when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we must endure patiently. First Peter 3, Matthew 5. But we can pray to our God who is the just judge. We are just asking for justice. That's what Davis titles this psalm when he comments on it. We're just asking for just justice. That's what we're calling God to do. God be just. God be 
uh, uh, God vindicate, God be the just judge, which you are. And I do think as well, once again, like we saw with Psalm 6 and Psalm 5, it teaches us to be thoughtful in our prayers. It teaches us to lay our plight out before our God most high. God, here's the situation. Here's what's going on. Here's my case. We can remonstrate. We can plead with God. We can call upon God. And we can do so in a manner similar to what we see in Psalm 7 and Psalm 6, as we most likely will have to pray for vindication. So that's a prayer of vindication. Let's then look secondly at a prayer of judgment, verses 11 through 17. Now, verses 11 and 13 continue the theme of justice, the justice of God. But I think there's a shift to focus on justice upon the wicked. Verses 1 through 10, there's a lot of my, a lot of I, a lot of me. Verses 11 through 17, there's a lot of he or God or the wicked one. So it's what God will do towards the wicked. Verses 1 through 10, what God will do for me, what God will do for the wicked in verses 11 through 17. And notice he is a just judge because it says he is a just judge. God is a just judge. Again, God must punish evil. There will be a judgment day. And notice we see God has a righteous indignation and God is angry with the wicked every day. Another difficult line for our modern delicate sensitivities, just like Psalm 5.5, you hate all workers of iniquity. It goes against this notion that God hates the sin, but not the sinner. That is so different from what we see in Psalm 5 and Psalm 7. God is angry with the wicked every day. And notice it's in the context of his judgment, of he being the judge over all. God must have a righteous hatred towards sin because he is, he is perfection. He is holy and he must righteously punish sin. We must recognize that God is holy and, and holy other, and God is holy in his moral perfection, and he cannot but deal with sin. And again, thankfully, it's either in Christ, and there's mercy in Jesus Christ, or it's in one's own sin. But notice, God is angry with the wicked every day, and he will bring righteous judgment. But notice there is a condition, verse 12. If he does not turn back, if there's no repentance, if there is no faith, if one does not flee the judgment to come in the Lord Jesus Christ, God must judge unrepentant sin. And God is a just judge and a perfect judge and an eternal judge who must punish sin eternally. And either it's eternally punished in Jesus or it's going to be eternally punished in the one who does not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've been thinking about this a little bit lately. If he does not turn back, sometimes as reform, we can get a little squeamish by that language, right? Sometimes we feel like we have to explain ourselves, but yeah, oh, they'll only believe if they were chosen. And I believe that, brethren. I believe that if they were chosen before, only those who are chosen before the foundation of the world, they will be the ones who are given the gifts of faith and repentance. I do believe that. But we also recognize in time and space, the way that God calls sinners is to call upon them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you repent and believe, you shall be saved. I do not know who the elect are. 
I do not have spiritual goggles to see into your heart and your mind. Only God can save. Only God can work. And so as Reformed, we shouldn't feel like we have to explain ourselves all the time. That, that's kind of my rant right now. That's kind of the point of what I'm saying. We have God who planned in eternity. We have God who brings that about in time and space. How does he do that? The proclamation of the word and for calling sinners out of darkness and into marvelous light. If one repents and turns, if one turns from their sin to the true and living God, they shall be saved and they shall flee the wrath to come. God has said that, and I believe that will be true. And we see perhaps a similar sort of line. It's probably a conceptual illusion. Not a lot of words match up with Psalm 7, but in Luke 13, I believe if you're doing the McShane calendar, uh, you read this today. But Jesus says, repent or perish. He says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? He talks about um, uh, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you will uh, repent, you will likewise perish. If you're not a believer in Christ today, unless you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall perish in your sins. And notice, he goes on to describe the judge as a formidable warrior. I love the warrior language in the Old Testament. And there's tons of warrior language in the New Testament with our Christ, the whose sandals, who I'm not, who is the one who is mightier than I in Mark's gospel. That is divine warrior type language referring to our Christ, the rider in white who comes and makes judgment. But look at this formidable foe. He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. A very vivid way of describing God's righteous wrath. A vivid way of describing God's righteous judgment. He is a formidable warrior. Unless you repent, unless you turn back, he will sharpen, he will bend, he will prepare, he makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So he is a just God who is angry with the wicked every day. And notice the judgment he will bring upon them, upon the guilty, in verses 14 through 16. And notice, it is one who is pregnant with evil. We see pregnancy imagery in verse 14. Behold, the wicked bring forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. What this is teaching us here is sometimes evil can take some time to fester. Sometimes evil can take some time to uh, be seen, but God sees it all. For us, it might seem like evil is being let go, that every people are getting away with doing evil, but then how quickly judgment can come. Yes, there is the coming end time judgment, and that shall come swiftly. But also, God sometimes in time and space, he removes tyrants, he removes perpetrators, he removes persecutors in a very quick providential way. And we see that image here. So they, they bring forth iniquity, conceive trouble and bring forth falsehood. And notice even the how long things can take, the conniving that can happen. Verse 15, he made a pit and dug it out. I haven't dug a trench in a while, but I'm sure the last, uh, the, but the last, what I remember about it is it takes a while to dig. 
So this person is setting up a snare for David. He's planning, he's plotting, takes a while to dig this trench. Needs to be in the right spot, needs to be in the perfect place. But how quickly he falls into the ditch which he made. He takes some time to dig it. Evil festers and builds. Yet God's judgment comes in an instant. God's judgment comes quickly. God answers David's prayer quickly. Trouble returns to him from God. He was meticulous in his work with evil, but God is the judge overall, and he has him fall into his own ditch. He has fallen into the ditch which he made. Verse 16, his trouble shall return upon his own head. And notice why. And his violent dealings shall come down on his own crown. His own violent dealings his own trouble, his wickedness, his falsehood. That's important when it comes to sin and judgment. God is the God overall, created this world, called it good, made man in his image, made man upright. And he commanded Adam, the first man, he said, I will give you all these good things if you do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, just that one tree, you don't have to eat, you can have everything else, but not that one tree. Do not eat eat from it. God made it upright, but what happened? Man sought out his own devices. And based upon the covenant that God entered in with Adam, based upon those conditions, it was Adam's fault. Don't eat or you're going to die. What does Adam do? He eats and brings death and sin and destruction and misery into this world. But the point is, it's his fault. Our sins are our fault because we willingly violate what the judge of the world has commanded us. We willingly go against what God has said. And so when God is going to judge those who don't believe on that final day, it's because they sinned against the judge overall. It's because they sinned against God most high. They are by no means innocent. God, who is the judge over all, shall he not do right? And that is important. His trouble, his violent dealings shall come down on his own crown. And then after calling judgment and speaking about the judgment of God upon his enemies, he praises God. Verse 17. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. In most of the laments, they do turn to praising God Most High. When we remember God in his righteousness, in his perfection, in his moral purity, and when we remember his righteous dealings, we cannot but praise him. Our confession says, talking about that final day, God's glory will be seen whether it's in the manifestation of his mercy towards the elect or the manifestation of his justice toward the reprobate. Both glorify God. All things are for me. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Proverbs 16, 4. That is tough, dear brethren. That is hard for us to deal with sometimes, but it's what God's word says. And we ought to thank God that there is an alien righteousness, not in ourselves, 
Because if it were in ourselves, we would only bring about further condemnation upon ourselves. But Jesus, who is righteous in every way, who lived the law in its perfection, died as that perfect sacrifice in our stead. And the judgment that we deserve comes forward. Jesus's uh, work on the cross brings that end time judgment forward for his people whom he died for. So that when we go to the judgment seat, when we go to judgment day, we're already clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the, what happens first is first it's resurrection, then judgment, then eternal bliss. But when we're resurrected, we're going to be resurrected into whom's body? Our self-same bodies, but conformed to Christ's body. And so we already go to the judgment seat, already conformed to Christ's body because of what he has done for us. That's what makes the gospel so mysterious and so glorious. We see both the love and justice of God in what Christ does for undeserving wretches like you and I. And we can never forget what he has done for us. As our troubles turn to praise, we ought to thank him. As he answers our prayers, whatever way he answers our prayers, we ought to thank him. We ought to praise him. We ought to worship him. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise the name of the Lord Most High. David said, uh, Davis says, trouble drives us to God so that we can place it before him. Then when he delivers from trouble, we go back to him with praise. Whether in tears or in triumph, we never get away from worship, from having to deal with God. We praise him according to his righteousness. We praise him as the Lord God most high. Now, in this prayer of judgment, certainly God's people, I do believe, even in modern times, can pray imprecations. I know a lot of people don't like that, but I do believe we can pray them. Uh, and I like to highlight a few things that they are not. We're not meant to be vindictive. <laughs> We're praying for vindication. We're praying for God to avenge. We're not praying for some jerk who cut us off and said, God, bring judgment down upon him. That's not what we're praying for here. But what we are praying for is just God's justice. Isn't that what we're praying for? And for people who don't like modern or imprecations for today, Paul prays one. Second Timothy 4. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May God repay him according to his works. We don't like that. But if there is persecution, if there is legit perpetrators, yes, pray for their salvation. But it's not wrong to pray that God would repay them according to their works, that God would be a just judge, that God vengeance is the Lord's. We're not to get vengeance for ourselves, but pray for God's justice. Also, in Luke 18, 7 and 8, uh, shall God not avenge the, his own elect who cry out to him day and night? Yes, he shall avenge them speedily. God shall do that very thing. And if you think we shouldn't pray them, are you more just than God? Are you more righteous than God? Are you more kind than God? Imprecations can be used by God's people, certainly sparingly, certainly, hopefully not, not often, but they are certainly a tool to pray. And what we're really praying for is God's justice. Judgment Day does bring hope that the enemies of God who persecute will be judged according to their own violent dealings. Davis again says, 
Think of the attacks of terrorist groups on 3,000 Christians left in the Gaza Strip, of the disappearance of a North Korean girl and her family because she told her teacher it was by God's grace she had gotten a good grade, of the way the Burmese army uses Karen Christian women and children as human minesweepers, and on it goes. But why? So you will throw up your arms and cry, O Lord, let the evil of the wicked ones come to an end. That's what we're praying for, that the wickedness of wicked people would come to an end. And again, thankfully, there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ that we can flee the judgment to come in him. But we do pray that he would make his enemies his footstool. We pray that his kingdom would come in. And the day of judgment is going to be a great day of rejoicing because of the mercy that has been shown to us, because of the bliss that awaits us. But also God will vindicate his people who've been persecuted day after day, who've been persecuted month after month. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. And if you're an unbeliever, The way you flee that judgment to come is only in Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners. Believe upon him and you shall be saved. The gospel call is believe on him, call upon him, and you shall be saved. Why would you be judged in your own sin when you can flee the judgment to come in Christ? who bore the wrath of God upon himself. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you that you are merciful and kind to undeserving sinners, but we are thankful that you are the God of justice as well. And thank you for that mysterious, blessed work of Christ on the cross. Thank you that we see your mercy, one who stood in our stead, one who died on our behalf, but we're thankful we see your justice. Thank you that the atonement is penal that Christ is the one who bore the penalty that we deserve. Thank you that he is the one whose blood was shed uh, uh, in our stead. And thank you because of this, your end time wrath came forward uh, in that cross work, that we who believe uh, might not need to fear. We who believe know the hope that we have that has been laid up for us in heaven. And so may we cling to that day by day. May we cling to that promise of who we are in Christ Jesus. And may we cling to the fact that we know you, the one true God, that you know us, uh, our, uh, your, your people, and that you are the God of justice. And thank you that we can pray and ask that your justice would be done. We pray that your justice would be seen and done uh, in this part of the world. We pray for it as a whole. We pray that, that people would stop calling evil good and good evil. We pray that people would stop murdering one another and murdering babies. We pray that there would be uh, uh, that there would be justice and equity. But we know that perfect justice and equity will not be until Christ comes back. And so we long for his coming. We long for his return. Yet we are thankful that as you delay, it is for the salvation for those whom are yours. And so we do pray as you tarry, that we would be patient, that as you tarry, that we would wait, and that as you tarry, that it would bring a great many to salvation, great many to saving knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. But help us to have wisdom in how we pray. Help us to have wisdom in what we pray. Help us to be thoughtful in the words that we pray. And so often we are so uh, forgetful. So often we are so thoughtless in our prayers. Please forgive us for these things and thank you that you are the God of justice. So when there are false accusations, 
uh, when there are smear campaigns, when there is persecution, may we endure patiently, and may we call upon the God who is our avenger, the God who is the God of justice, the God who shall rise up against our enemies, the God who shall rise up against his enemies, and may we put our faith and trust in you. So help us to praise your name, O Lord God, our righteousness. Help us to sing praises to your name, O Lord Most High. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.